Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema at Brigham Young University. This podcast is for week 12 of BYU's winter semester 2022. I'm Mark Olivier, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined today by Dr. Michael Griffin, assistant professor at Brigham Young University in the mathematics department. He's been working at BYU for five years now. He's a Utah native and came to BYU as an undergrad. He served a mission in the India-Bangalore mission, and his research has been cited in all kinds of publications, such as Popular Science, magazines, Discover, Scientific American. He is one of the faculty advisors for USGA, the unofficial student organization for LGBTQ plus students at BYU. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. It's good to be here. We're going to talk today about uh, the documentary Common Threads, Stories from the Quilt. It is a Oscar-winning documentary that was released in 1989, and it tells the stories of a few people who are represented in the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt, which had been displayed on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. two years earlier. There were more than 1,920 quilt panels that were made by friends and family of loved ones who were lost to the AIDS epidemic. And it focuses, just to give a quick overview, it focuses mainly on five people's story. There's Dr. Tom Waddell, who's an Olympian, a gay man, whose story is told by Sarah, who met with him as the two were on the board of the gay games, and the two decided to have a child together. Then there's David Mandel Jr., a young boy with hemophilia whose parents tell his story. There is Robert Perryman, a heterosexual drug user whose story is told by his widow, Sally. There's Jeffrey Sevchik, a gay man whose story is told by his partner, Vito, who is a film historian. And then finally, David Campbell, a gay man whose story is told by his, his partner, who is a U.S. Navy veteran who was dying from AIDS at the time that they were making the documentary. So because this came out in 1989, it basically covers earlier years of the AIDS crisis at, from 1981 to 1989. So finally, Michael, to get to you, I just want to give you, this is, I wanted to have this film play at international cinema, and I kind of had three reasons, and I'm going to kind of touch on some of them and see what your feelings are. Sure. So first, I feel like there are a lot of younger people who maybe don't know that much about the AIDS epidemic other than seeing it as a plot point in films or TV shows. Sure. And then second, we'll get back to this, because we have been living in a pandemic for more than two years, I think that we might be more sensitive to how politics, culture, wars, and disease kind of interrelate and then third, I think culture wars over marginalized communities are still strong and that Common Threads offers hope for how we can build community even when there is division. So going back to that first one, okay. what kind of awareness do you 
feel that there is. I mean, I, I granted this is anecdotal, but what do you think people know about AIDS today? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm no expert on AIDS for sure. I was aware of the crisis as I was growing up in the 90s that this was a thing that had been going on. I feel like for a lot of people, we've in many ways kind of moved past it. There's treatments now that make it not such a terrible thing anymore. Mm -hmm. And so largely it's, it's kind of been brushed aside. And so it's, it's still, I, people are aware of it. It's still part of the cultural consciousness, but it's not something that people think about very much anymore. Yeah. I think that it has changed enough and there's been enough improvement that it's true that it, it doesn't have the force, the weight that it once did. I'm old enough to remember this time. I mean, I was in high school in the eighties. I can remember this sort of hysteria, this collective panic about somebody having a nosebleed and the sudden fear that, you know, this a kindergartner at school would have that yeah. and everybody was scared of blood. You know, there's the Greg Luganis thing. There's this fear of contagion that there used to be. And I don't think that that's really, I don't know. Do you get that sense that that's changed? I mean, we still generally, I think this has impacted the way that people administer first aid and deal with, you know, things in the hospital. We're a lot more aware of diseases and whatnot being transmitted by bodily fluids, but I think that we're also at a point where we understand these things a little bit better and there's less fear attached to it, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. I think that, that it's tempting to think in some ways that politics of disease is something new to the pandemic. <laughs> people are very tuned in now oh. to how intertwined politics and disease can be. But I think this documentary shows that culture wars and politics have perhaps always been a part of how humans relate to the disease and or to diseases. And that isn't to say that we always relate to disease in the same way. But how do you see politics, cultural beliefs, and medicine intersecting in this documentary? Yeah, so one of the one of the obvious things, and they, they talk about this in the documentary, was for a long time it was very much considered a gay disease. I think they used mm -hmm. that phrase in, in the movie. It was a gay disease. And so this was something that much of America felt like they could ignore. I remember even in the 90s, you know, as a younger kid, I remember hearing people talk about how this was maybe God's punishment for the gays, some Sodom and Gomorrah mm -hmm. movie. And, you know, that absolutely affected the way that people approached it. Politics, as far as treatments, the, the money or attention that grants that were given for funding to study it or who was willing to study it to figure things out, that was just kind of brushed aside for a long time because it was somebody else's problem and it was a marginalized community's problem. It was people that much of America could ignore, could pretend like it's not our problem, it's their problem, they probably deserve it for whatever reason. Right. And so we don't have to deal with it. Yeah, there's definitely a sense of morality around it where it was like, if you didn't want the disease, yeah. then you know, you shouldn't have been gay or something. Right. I mean, it, Ronald Reagan comes up in it, it talking yeah. about how he didn't even use the word AIDS publicly for, mm -hmm. I don't know, a few years or something. Yeah. How do you think that the film that is really, you know, just new and raw, how does this documentary participate in the dialogue with what's happening politically or culturally? It certainly addresses that. It talks very clearly about these issues with, with Reagan not being willing to talk about it, about the issues with 
in science and medicine, studying things, but it also addresses it in a way that brings it home a little bit closer to the to the general public. Uh, as you mentioned, there were five individuals, three of them were gay, and mm-hmm. you know that's a big part of it, but there were two people that represented another large class of people that were deeply affected by this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember the documentary at one point mentioned that AIDS was the number one killer of homophilia. And so it would be very hard for anybody to say that that was a moral issue that was you know, causing their deaths. It was affecting them. Possibly with the other man who'd used narcotics. Yeah. People could argue perhaps that there's morality issues there. You know, Again, part of the marginalized community mm-hmm. that people were more willing to look away from and not you know, address those issues. But I think especially having that story of the homophiliac child Avery. Yeah. Um, that was, that he was needs blood transfusions. Moved. The parents are worried about that. And yet yeah. it's, it's necessary. It is still kind of sad that we have to have those types of stories to right. bring the public sympathy to the issue. But I think that was a, a really strong thing that the film did. Yeah. I think that it humanizes this really well. I know that some people have critiqued it at the same time saying, okay, you've got three out of the five are middle-class white gay men. Mm -hmm. So that kind of fits into a stereotype associated with it, that you've got a poorer black drug user also fits into a stereotype. And then you've got the young kid who's the victim, you know, of it. And so in some ways it's like, on the one hand, you tell these stories and it's, profoundly affecting to listen to this it's and really humanizes everyone on the other whose stories get to be told which stories are told are there for you watching it were you wondering that at all were you thinking of what other kinds of stories there are there's five stories out of 1920 at the time well and certainly that's that's something that i think is a big point of this is that there are so many other stories Mm -hmm. Uh, for sure, they were a little bit selective of the stories they, they told, and they definitely picked some stories that I don't know how they chose them, but it seems likely they made some decision on stories that, that would they felt would resound with the audience that they were trying to reach. Mm-hmm. But there are so many other stories, and absolutely, I think, hopefully, people will take away from this that there are so many other stories, and, and hopefully go and look up some of those other stories yeah. and find some of those other stories that resonate a little bit closer to home or whatever, whoever's looking at those. Right. I mean, I think that, I don't know how many blocks are still being created, but I do know that it grew within a certain number of years afterwards to something like 40,000 of these. So as a, at the time, just the 1920 on display at the National Mall was an incredibly powerful look at the impact. I think, now I'm curious, the stigma that it went with yeah. this disease, do you think that's changed? It certainly has changed. I, I don't know that it's gone away entirely, but it's certainly changed. It seems like what we were seeing and what was illustrated in the film was almost this terror in the general public about it. And there's certainly, there's other films that kind of depict uh, largely in the gay community, there was almost a resignation for any people that were just resigned that it was going to, they were going to get it sooner or later. And things have definitely changed on that. It's not even even people who contract HIV, there's treatments that make it so they're not as likely to spread it. Mm-hmm. And we're a lot more aware of 
exactly the mechanisms to prevent that testing for blood transfusion so it doesn't spread that way so much and how to treat the disease itself so that it doesn't just having HIV itself isn't automatically death sentence like it used to be. So as we record this, what will be will have been last week's films include a musical by a French director named Jacques Demy who died of AIDS. And it wasn't until I think much later, more than a decade later, that they revealed that that was the cause of death. At the time, they said he died of cancer. Oh, wow. And I had a friend who died in the 90s whose family told everyone he had died of cancer when, in fact, it was AIDS. And I think it's interesting for a point of comparison to think that, like, cancer seemed to be something that carried no moral judgment at all. Yeah. And it became like the cover for the thing that did, that people were ashamed about. Now, that's my last experience with knowing somebody who has died of AIDS was in the 90s. And I felt like it was still there. But yeah, it, there's definitely each disease either carries some sort of weight or some interpretation with COVID. I mean, not to be too <laughs> political because it's such a divisive thing, but do you see any similarities or differences between what's going on with the pandemic now in terms of culture wars versus what was happening in the 80s with AIDS? I mean, certainly there's there's aspects of culture war going on. It To me, it feels kind of different, the kind of the front that, it, that mm-hmm. it comes on, right? Because as we were talking about in the 80s over, over AIDS, the culture war largely was the people who were getting this were stigmatized. Mm-hmm. Um, and here it almost feels like with, with COVID, it, it feels like the, the culture war is more about the treatments, our political responses to it. You know, what are we willing to do to prevent it? Or, you know, are those responses, are there ulterior motives of those responses? Mm-hmm. There's certainly plenty of politics and conspiracy theories over where it came from and what it's all about. Yeah. Do you think that this documentary offers any kind of solutions to how to overcome the divisions? Because I think this is, you know, here the title, Common Threads, Uh seems to be about bringing people together and repairing through a collective mourning process. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you think is a good takeaway that somebody could apply to bringing people together today? Yeah, well, the whole approach to it, I think, is essential. The idea of sharing stories. Mm-hmm. And again, we talked about the fact that these are five very specifically chosen and curated stories, and maybe we would feel more attached to different stories you know, for our broader audience. But it's about telling the stories and having people recognize these are humans. They're not statistics. Yeah, and we we run into this issue with all sorts of other things. Like I said before, I mean one of the one of the big issues here was it was always somebody else's problem. Mm-hmm. The solution here is is recognizing that if it's somebody's problem, it's it's all of our problems. Yes, like it's not just COVID, but there's so many other situations where there's things going on that we're willing to say, well, that's somebody else's problems. You know, there's there's all sorts of things, political situations going on with you know, indigenous populations. Mm-hmm. And well, even, I mean, you know, with the war in Ukraine, with any yeah. kind of any kind of tragedy Absolutely. that you have, you have this balance between... Well, and, and even you, know, you can have sympathy, like, oh, that's too bad, but I'm there's nothing for me to do, so I'm not even going to think about it. You know, we get to the yeah. situation with, uh, with, with AIDS. 
you know, certainly your average person in the population wasn't going to be the one doing the groundbreaking research to solve AIDS, but the people in power were apathetic, and that was the problem, but they were allowed to be apathetic because the rest of the community was. And we have these right. same situations today. There's a lot of travesties that are going on, and it's not like every individual has the power to change everything, but the people in power who do are allowed to be apathetic because the population is apathetic. There's a journalist named Michael Musto who said that there should be a warning sticker on the quilt that reads, don't feel that by crying over this, you've really done something for AIDS. Right. How do you react to that? I think it's a great point. I think that first step is is recognizing the stories, is humanizing people. But then if you stop there, nothing's happened. Nothing's, yeah. nothing's changed. If we're talking about Ukraine, mm-hmm. and of course there's all sorts of politics in the background there and all sorts of complicated situations, but if we want to care about Ukraine or, or you know the, the refugees from Ukraine or refugees from anywhere else, if we want to learn their stories, that's great, and maybe that helps certain situations, but it doesn't actually accomplish anything unless we turn around and make a difference if we don't. Right. It's yeah. a step. You know, I can't help but think as, a, as somebody with a literature background, my mind, well, and film, my mind goes to two things. One, I love Roger Ebert, the late film critic, has said that movies are an empathy-generating machine. Mm-hmm. So I love that idea that film has a power to do that. Yeah. Then I also think all the way back to Aristotle about <laughs> tragedy, because this is yeah. a movie about tragedy. Right. And what's interesting is that Aristotle saw tragedy as a social cure. It was linked to health, the idea that you go to the theater, you collectively feel these things, and that you're maybe purged of bad things that you don't have to therefore go through because the characters went through them. And and so the connection between film, literature, disease has kind of always been there, that there's this idea that maybe there can be some sort of healing that comes from tragedy and experiencing this tragedy. Yeah. Are there are there any stories, you know, with within the film that really stood out to you where you felt the most emotionally touched? Well, I think there were two stories that that really touched me. And one one was the the child dying from hemophilia. That whole story just I think the fact that it was a child. That was that was very powerful and moving simply because we're we're dealing with a child who hasn't done any you know yeah yeah he's a hemophiliac he doesn't this is, this is just something that, that he, happened to yeah. him and uh, cut his life very short the other story was and I, i'm trying to remember the the character but it was i i, I think it was his sister who who told her family that he was dying of aids uh-huh. he, he was going to die and she was very close to her family but she told everyone he is dying and i expect every single one of you to be there to the funeral and if you don't show up, I will cut you out of my life. Again, mm-hmm. just pushing straight back against all of the stigma. Just yeah. saying, I don't have time for for all of your, your cautious, oh no, mm-hmm. and, uh, put the blame on him and, and let me be safe and stay away. No, this is a person that needs to be loved. You need to remember him. That's such an important message to just realize that no matter what your other judgments are, that as a human being, yeah. You need to choose first to love other people yeah, and let the other stuff, you know, that's not the time. It's not the place. It's the first and foremost, you know, we should care and love people. 
Yeah. Now, just for my completely anecdotal curiosity, I felt like when I watched this movie, I'm like, you would have to be a monster not to cry at some point yeah. watching this thing, which is a judgment, <laughs> which I think this is also shows how easily we can judge based on reactions. <laughs> because I'm like, does that happen? Was it just me? Did you feel like this is a tearjerker of a documentary? Well, sure, it was a tearjerker. I didn't cry. <laughs> you monster! No, I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> so my, my sample size of one or two... <laughs> has yeah. been a 50-50 result. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm curious what maybe other people might see this. In some people, this has produced anger. Mm -hmm. You know, anger that the government sure. didn't step in earlier. Anger that people can be callous at loss. You know, what other types of reactions do you think that this could create? I mean, do you expect going into it that there... It, does it feel like there's supposed to be something that you should get out of it? Well, yeah, I think both of those those reactions that you that you talked about, I think those were, you know, definite purposes of the film. The filmmakers wanted to get you to feel sad mm -hmm. and angry. They wanted you to feel some some measure of compassion and love for these individuals whose story is being told, and anger that more wasn't done, or anger at the unjust reactions that people had towards it and hopefully again like you said hopefully the audience watching this film and having any of those reactions can not just leave those reactions in the theater and not just leave those for for this film but take them out and make something meaningful out of them right if, if you're angry about inaction then go and do something if it invokes love and compassion then go out and be loving and compassionate yeah that's great I kind of want to work towards the end here with this question about numbers. Okay. <laughs> You're a math guy. I won't, sure. I'm not. No, but the, how we make meaning out of these numbers. The film does a sort of tally mm -hmm. as you go. I think that they talk about 1981, 330 deaths. 1982, 1,285 deaths. I have to say, out of pure pandemic mm -hmm. cynicism, I felt in some ways this dehumanizing moment where when they get to the end where the, it's in the tens of thousands, yeah. I'm thinking, okay, in two years, we're up to, as of I think a week ago, 961,620 deaths in the United States from mm -hmm. COVID. Yeah. And it's easy to get desensitized. Yeah. You've mentioned this earlier, you know, to, with the numbers. So, how do you, you know, and I think, so I looked up, okay, how many people have died from AIDS from the 80s until now? In, in the U.S., I think, it's around 700,000. But the danger of numbers, mm -hmm. I feel like, is that now we start pitting these numbers against each other. And right. like, oh, that's, people have done this with the flu as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. What do you think, like, how do we deal with the temptation to do away with numbers or say that's not so many compared to such and such a thing. <laughs> How do we process enormous numbers like this? That's always a, a difficult question. Part of the, the issue with large numbers is people don't understand large numbers. Mm -hmm. You can tell somebody 10,000 people and you can tell somebody 100,000 people and those numbers don't feel that different. It's just a one digit difference, right? Yeah. And so the scale is something that, that can be incredibly shocking if you really take the, the time to compare these things 
towards each other. But again, sometimes that's done with a, with a total agenda that's not, not actually helpful. Yeah. Right. At the beginning of the, the COVID stuff, people were making, well, we, we had, we had huge measures that were taken and, uh, even before there had even been a large number of cases yeah. and people were making a big deal. There aren't even very many cases. Well, that's not the number that's really important here. The number that is really important here is the infection rate. How, how infectious is this? Yeah. How fast is this going to spread? How many people, you know, and, and, and this other number, it doesn't, it compared to the flu, COVID doesn't seem to kill as many people comparatively, but there's so many more cases that we've had so many more deaths it's very easy to get lost in the numbers. Which mm-hmm. numbers matter? Which numbers don't matter? I don't know. It's <laughs> it's a difficult thing to, yeah. to get into. Well, each life is important, mm-hmm. and you get into this point where people are dying, and people weren't caring to figure out why or to figure out how to stop it from happening. Right. Or who those people were. Right. And I guess this is where, to sort of wrap up, that you get to the number five. Sure. You just ultimately, by taking just a small number, five stories, mm-hmm. and then at the end, going out to where you see all of these untold stories, these 1,200 more. I think it was in, in the film, it was David's parents mm-hmm. said the child that died of hemophilia, they said something about looking at all the pain, everything that we went through as a family, and then looking at every single one of these these names and realizing that all of this pain is multiplied by by these thousands, tens of thousands of names across this planet. Yeah, and that's where you go from individual suffering to sort of broadening your empathy to encompass more people, and you know, and understand. And I think that's where our viewers, hopefully, if you go see this documentary, I think you will feel the empathy generating machine of the movies working on you and hopefully get to where you can feel somebody else's pain in a way that, like you said, leads to further action, more empathy towards others, more empathy towards people today, you know, whether it's COVID or AIDS or some other form of suffering. So I would like to thank you so much for coming and chatting today about this. I'm really glad that you took time to help give your perspective. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. This podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here. They do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We'd like to thank our producer, Devin Glenn, our sound engineer, Marina Hagstrom Pratt, and Johnny Stallings, who composed our podcast soundtrack. Visit ic.byu.edu for upcoming films and showtimes. Until next week, keep seeing great international movies.